Welcome to another episode from Just Tales, a monthly hybrid of fictional and non-fictional stories that compel me to rant. There'll always be a golf story or two laced into my blog because, well, it's where I spend a good amount of my recreational time. So whether you're a golfer or not, if you're a skeptic, doubter, or open-minded, this is the place for you. So kick back and listen. In this month's episode, I'll be ranting about Begging Bachelorettes. New York hires ex-cons to sell weed legally. Minions, minions everywhere. Gentlemen smugglers. Don't be jack in the box. Tumultuous tornado in the eighth race. Rockstar cheer where everyone's getting fingered. Adderall shortage again. When is a gimme not a gimme? But first, a follow-up to shithead Alex Jones. Well, Alex Jones, who in my opinion is the representative of all that's bad in the world, after being convicted of capitalizing on malicious rants about the Sandy Hook massacre, the jury in Texas awarded the plaintiffs $50 million. Now in Connecticut, another trial for similar charges. Alex Jones actually criticized the presiding judge in proceedings and avoided the witness stand after the first day of trial. In a heated testimony, Jones said he would no longer apologize for his lies and solicitation for financial support for his followers. So he's having a standoff against Superior Judge Judy Barbara Bellis, who was very clear with him about the boundaries of topics he could and couldn't discuss. I mean, think about it. How many defendants have been impugned when challenging a superior court judge? 0.0. I could only hope that what goes around comes around and that superior court judge Barbara Bellis has enough strength and enough power to bankrupt him and silence him forever. Begging bachelorettes, are you seeing what I'm seeing? I live in Charleston, South Carolina, as I mentioned in the beginning and end of all of my 103 podcast episodes. You don't have to be a member of the Chamber of Commerce to tout the benefits of this community. The accolades from Travel and Leisure magazine say it all. Cobblestone walkways and well-preserved historic sites, world-class restaurants, and miles of dog-friendly beaches. Well, they're friendly until 10 a.m. Then the dog police canvass the beaches to ticket the unleashed. The southern charm and the gracious politeness tie it all up in a bless your heart kind of bow. All of this attention is a blessing and sometimes a curse. Charleston is a top destination for bachelor, bachelorette, and wedding parties. That certainly brings in a lot of money from the outside, which is great for hospitality, and most of the golf courses and bars in Charleston benefit from the bachelor and bachelorette party scene. Well, the golf courses benefit from the bachelor party scene. I've had the most fun working the first tee at Charleston National, particularly when I meet all the bachelor parties in full stride. Hey, look, I've been to Las Vegas. I've counted over 100 times on company boondoggles and incentive programs and have often stepped up to the first tee of whatever golf course the group had chosen with bloodshot eyes, the taste of vodka still on my breath, and maybe a shower to separate night from day. And that's what I see in most of the bachelor parties here in Charleston. So I get it. Now, I can't say the same for my curmudgeon co-worker who has to ranger the course and keep traffic moving. 
It's worse than hurting cats. I mean, if all of these guys are golfing and rabble-rousing and drinking, what are all the femme fatales doing when they visit for bachelorette parties because they're not coming to the golf courses? I mean, that's the other 50% of this millennial and Gen Z population. What are they doing? They're pandering for money to pay for their trip, buy the bride a drink. That's the message on social media, shirts, cars, streamers, hairbands, or Venmo the wifey. Bachelorettes are hauling in over four to $500 a weekend to offset the cost of their trip. I mean, downtown Charleston is filled with bachelorette parties in clouders, many of whom are soliciting donations for their parties. Now, the first time I saw it years ago, I thought it was creative and also seductive. All of these 30-somethings were soliciting every guy in the bar to help continue their party. And what guy doesn't want to help that, right? But now it's become oversaturation of which I think is an unoriginal concept. It's overkill. First of all, asking friends and social media contacts to support something that you didn't invite them to is just socially retarded. And I use that term in its Oxford Dictionary meaning, to hold back in terms of progress. Second, soliciting funds from total strangers so that you can celebrate with the hope that this bride's new social contract will last better than most is just selfish. But isn't that the theme of our newest generation of young adults? Me, 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 only me, 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 sexy me, 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 only me, 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 sexy me, 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 me. I'm an advocate of all sexes enjoying the rights bestowed on all other sexes. Equal pay equal voices, equal rights. The solicitation of funds to underwrite a bride-to-be's party, I think is a massive step backwards. So it's like we want and deserve equal rights, but could you separate your hard-earned dollars from your wallet so that I don't have to pay for my bachelorette party because I'm cute and drunk and seductive? Well, at least the last part got my attention but it's not going to help the overarching cause for women's rights and all that being said okay here's five bucks because i'm just a big dumb fun guy so new york state is about to legalize recreational weed for sale at retail That's right, dispensaries in the Big Apple. And who do you think they're looking for to run the establishments? Well, if Jay-Z was your guess, it's close, but no cigar. Get this. Ex-cons that have been busted for possession. New York wants to kickstart the program by distributing $200 million from its social equity cannabis investment fund, also known as SECIF, like this would suck if it wasn't so true, to help pay for beneficiaries to set up shops to obtain licenses and pay for their overhead. I mean, something here seems a little amiss. Does the state of New York actually believe that individuals who have been dodging the law selling weed on the black market are going to be compliant with all of the regulatory compliance and tax collection? Hmm, I don't know. I mean, has anybody in the state government ever watched Breaking Bad? Granted, the game in Breaking Bad was meth. But the characterization of criminals involved in selling drugs, probably close to home. 
I mean, wouldn't you imagine that there are characters like the Salamancas, Jesse Pinkman, and Gus Freed out on parole after serving time for the sale of marijuana? Yeah. I mean, it's almost like the movie The Dirty Dozen. I mean, for those of you who have never seen that movie, here's the plot. A rogue colonel has to recruit murderers, rapists, thieves, and bipolar maniacs to assassinate German generals while occupying a chateau in France. The plot almost fails because they were lunatics. I personally think that hiring weed-smart people to run dispensaries is a business-smart idea. Soliciting ex-cons might not be the wisest state-compliant business decision. But it's a move in the political correct direction if the state wants to demonstrate a strategy of reparation for those convicted for breaking the law that we're selling weed, a law now that is no longer on the books. When the state approves the sale of recreational weed in dispensaries, it is going to be taxed up the ass. And when that happens, the black and the gray market is going to get even stronger because they're going to have weed far cheaper than if you buy it in a dispensary. And who do you think is going to run the black and the gray market? Yeah, the people that they're looking for to run the dispensaries. Hey, we'll see. Minions, minions everywhere. They're ubiquitous. Twelve years after making their screen debut in a supporting role in Despicable Me, the bite-sized, thumb-shaped, incompetent little beings have emerged as one of the best-known franchises in recent Hollywood history. The Minions represent successful execution of the hardest part of doing business in Hollywood today, building and sustaining lucrative franchises that make money beyond the box office. This summer's Minions, The Rise of Gru, is the highest-grossing animated movie release in years. The five movies featuring the Minions has averaged more than $300 million domestically and $4.6 billion globally. The licensing deals for these characters is just off the roof. They've generated over $6 billion in sales. For those listeners who haven't seen or heard them, the interesting thing is that the Minions don't speak any language outside high-pitched vowel sounds, which attracts youth from across the globe, and more than just youth. What keeps the franchise alive is the fan-generated artwork and support. This is truly viral and not part of the think tank plan at Illumination Studios. When teenagers are coming to the theaters dressed in suits, a phenomenon called Gentle Minions, it was confirmation that a generation that grew up with the franchise was following it as they grew up. And now teenagers are going to see it. Most creators that try to create their own viral experience fall flat on their ass. You can't create viral. When the do-it-yourselfers catch the virus, then it becomes gold. And minions have become gold. Gentlemen smugglers, who knew? One of the greatest kept secrets or the least popularized stories about the war on drugs from the Reagan era was a story about the gentlemen smugglers of South Carolina. Now, how did this come to my attention, you might ask? I'm back at the COVID cabana last Friday night, 
And as I pull up to the thatched hut, I see a bunch of people with this professional camera, all this video equipment, and they're filming guys and ladies singing behind this illuminated sign that said, Gentlemen Smugglers. Well, to my mind, I was like, that's a first. The cabana has been 134 straight weeks of Friday nights, and it's been a sausage party. Started by a group of bored-to-death, fun-loving guys that just needed to escape the quarantining. I can't recall how many I've attended over the last 134 weeks, but I know one thing. It's been a male-only attended event, and for all the ladies and sex-undesignated listeners, not to despair. Most spouses are encouraging their partners to get the hell, I mean, take a break and hang with the guys for a few hours and talk about boring guy shit like sports, business, sports, the Alex Murdoch case, sports, and stupid shit that guys do and regret the rest of their lives. So when I see this mixed group of guys and gals singing and videoing, I knew something was definitely different. I come to learn that the Gentleman Smugglers, a brand of weed in one of the northeastern states where recreational weed is legal, is making a big splash, supported by a documentary of the real Gentleman Smugglers of South Carolina from the 1970s. So here's a skinny minute of the story. Les Riley and Barry Fox smuggled over $1.8 billion of weed from South America and the Caribbean islands through the South Carolina Barrier Islands. Now, they weren't gun-carrying, law-enforcement-killing pirates. They were fun-loving guys that had a knack for finding ways to bring weed into the low country through the marshes, through the estuaries and barrier islands without getting caught. And here's the part of the story that gets interesting. President Reagan declares this war on drugs and sets their sights on outlaw sailors. That made the gentlemen smugglers even more crafty, making a game out of the chase. They successfully trafficked drugs over a decade until they were caught sent to jail, escaped from jail, caught again, and were finally hunted down by a motivated and ambitious DA from South Carolina called Henry McMaster, who eventually becomes the governor of South Carolina following Nikki Haley's departure to Trump's ambassadorship to the United Nations. So now fast forward 40-plus years. McMaster now governs the most conservative state in the United States in South Carolina, one of the last states firmly against the legalization of marijuana. He is an old holdout from the Reagan era. Wouldn't it be ironic if the gentleman smugglers got their band back together again to fight McMaster on legalizing weed? From the office of the president right down to me and you. I mean, come on, man. Wouldn't that be the most ironic poetic justice? Hey, man, don't you be jack in the box. Have you ever made the birdie putt of a lifetime to win a hole and then walk up to the next tee box and be surprised that one of the other guys in your foursome is setting up to hit their tee shot before you. That guy is Jack in the Box. There's an unspoken point of golf etiquette where the golfer who shoots the lowest score on a hole has honors on the next tee box. You might be thinking, is the etiquette of honors actually in the rules of golf? You might be surprised to find out, yes, yes it is. But does playing out of order 
cause a player a penalty? No. No, it doesn't. So it's a rule developed to help determine the order of play. Otherwise, the ultra-polite golfers would be deferring to the other golfers. No, you go. No, no, you go. Please, I insist, you go. No, I wouldn't think of it. When they wrote the rules of golf, the founders were well aware of how some, many, most golfers are impatient and just want to get up and hit their ball. Their ball. Yeah, so I think the rule of order where the lowest score from the last hole goes first helps to solve the problem of over-politing syndrome. Personally, I haven't witnessed a lot of over-politing in any group I've played with in recent times, present company included. Jack-in-the-box is a syndrome of a much larger problem, slow play. If everybody you're playing with made quick decisions on what club to hit, how much wind to consider, is the green elevated or is it below my feet, how much club do I need to avoid that hazard? There are several things that good golfers consider before they pull a club from their bag. And that process of optimizing your shots shouldn't take more than 30 seconds from the time you arrive to your ball. Distance, lie, elevation, hazards, wind, and last but not least, how am I hitting the ball today? That last one should always come into play and come into play usually mid to late round because by that time, you know what you're doing right or you know what you're doing wrong. And if you have certain habits and you keep going back to them, you'll recognize them. Let's say it's just one of those days where you're just not hitting the ball as far as you used to. So you start to take an extra club. Now, all that being said, some golfers have to be reminded that they're playing golf on every shot. It's like they're learning the sport a hundred times during the round. Your condition is stable, but most likely permanent. Oh, I'm so sorry, dear. But it could be worse. Yeah, how? I think you should meet 10-second Tom. Hi, I'm Tom. Henry. Marlon. Doug. Lucy. Hi. Oh, those are cool flip-flops. Where'd you get them? You like those? It's an interesting story. I was over on the North Door the other day. And Hi, I... I'm Tom. Huh? Uh, Henry. Hi. Marlon. Tom lost part of his brain in a hunting accident. His memory only lasts 10 seconds. It was in an accident? That's terrible. Don't worry. You'll totally get over it in about three seconds. Get over it? I mean, what happened? Did I get shot in the brain? I... Hi, I'm Tom. Now, that wears on your playing partners to the point where the snail finally makes a birdie and wins the hole, and the other golfers in the foursome are racing to go to the next tee box to move things along. It's like the snail-watching dilemma is exacerbated when you're watching somebody in the foursome in front of you take their time to make decisions. Sometimes I just want to carry a bullhorn when a group in front of us is visibly slow playing. But that would be douchebaggery. Other than to encourage the speed of play and agreeing to the rules of hitting order, there's actually more method to that madness. Taking the first shot on a tee box is a competitive advantage. It gives you a psychological advantage, particularly if you hit a great drive or iron shot on a par three. It puts pressure on your competitors to match your good shot. When you're playing well and you keep the tee box for several holes, you're controlling your psychological destiny. You set to manifest great results before they do. And when you're playing like shit and happen to win a hole, I'm not sure that owning the tee box on the next hole is going to be much of an advantage. But if you believe that winning the previous hole is the beginning of your comeback, then you can manufacture a thought that might translate to a great tee shot. Whatever you do, don't be jack in the box when it's not your turn to hit. It's just bad karma. And I think... I'm talking to myself here.
It's tumultuous tornado in the eighth race. Welcome to the third race at the Honeymoon is Over Downs. They're at the gate, and they're off. Jumping out in the lead is Romance and Affection, with Domestic Bliss in close behind. It's Romance and Affection and Domestic Bliss. Here comes Marriage Vows, followed by Immediate Child. Romance and Affection falling off quickly. Mortgaged up the ass, overtaking Domestic Bliss. And here comes Nasty Attitude, followed by More Children and Drinking Heavily. Coming down the backstretch, Drinking Heavily moving out in front of Mortgaged up the ass. But coming on strong on the outside is Credit in Shambles. It's Credit in Shambles, followed by I Don't Give a Shit, Nasty Attitude, and Up Yours Keep. Up yours, Keith, challenging for second, going into the clubhouse turn. Passing on the rail as I don't give a shit, taking the lead. Followed by the fucking house. You cook like shit, and I fucked your brother. Here they come, spinning out of the turn. I don't give a shit, still in front. Up yours, Keith, challenging for the lead. Up yours, Keith, and I don't give a shit, neck and neck. And down the stretch they come. Up yours, Keith is pulling away from I don't give a shit by a length. Coming on strong is I am out of here, and passing the pack is the fucking house. And at the wire, it's up yours, keep the fucking house, I don't give a shit, and I am out of here. Have you ever been given a horse tip that was a guaranteed winner, so then you bet on it, and you lost? Well, here's my story. The summer between my junior and senior year in college, I painted old houses up in Saratoga Springs, New York. It was good money, and I was paid in cash every week. Saratoga Springs has one of the most iconic racetracks in the world. Back when I was in college, the track was only open 30 days a year, mostly in August, and I think it might have extended 10 more days. During that summer between my junior and senior year, I made over $3,000 painting houses, which would have made my senior year work free. But here's the catch. The guys who owned the house painting business were Union College graduates and had a sweet tooth for the track. They'd been going to the track for years, and according to them, big winners every year, which enabled them not to have to work too hard in the wintertime. During the month of August, when the track opened, they would spend every afternoon there. And every Friday, when I got paid, they would share their winning stats, their parlays, their trifectas, their quinellas, superfectors, the multi-race exotics. I mean, they would share all their winnings, how they made their money. They'd tell me about the races. And look, I didn't come from a gambling family. So all of those terms were foreign to me. As a matter of fact, my dad would always coach me not to gamble. He'd be like, hold on to your money and invest it. So they keep inviting me to come with them every Friday, but I knew nothing about horse racing and needed the money for the next semester. One of the last weeks in August, when the racetrack was about to come to an end, I decide, okay, I'm going to join them and see what this whole fanfare is all about. You know, hell, you know, maybe I could turn $3,000 into $30,000, and not only would I be set, for the next semester, that would give me a lot of time to, after college, to do one of these tours around the world, go to Europe, go get a URL pass, whatever it was, it was going to buy me a lot of time before I had to go into the working world. So I kind of like the idea of it. Saratoga Racetrack is one of the most picturesque tracks in the United States. It was my first experience and it was packed with excitable people. And the girls at the track were smoking hot. So at 21, I was all about this new adventure. So I sat and I watched a few races just to get to f- the feel of wagering. I actually made these phantom bets on horses that I thought would win. So I'd write down on the sheet of paper who I think would win. I didn't bet, and I watched the races. And quite frankly, most of those races where I had some tips on horses the horses came in. Win, place, show. So, you know, I had seen the movie The Sting before, and I didn't want to get bamboozled. But my phantom bets got me excited because I was winning. 
And so then I get this tip from one of the guys. Hey, Rich, tumultuous tornado is running in the eighth race. And they were telling me how they handicapped the horse, the other races that he had run in. This is a no-brainer. This is the big win. We all know about it. Our buddies who have been at the track all summer were telling us about this race and this horse. It's a no-brainer. It is a sure thing. And I recall the odds were like 10 to 1 or even higher. So it wasn't the favored horse, but they had some inside information on the way this horse had been running. All of that leads me to the betting window. And I walk up and I'm like, what do I do? And I just keep thinking about this trip to Europe, trip around the world, buying time before I have to enter the real world. And I walk up and I go, $3,000 on tumultuous tornado in the eighth to win. Now, I could have bet him to place. I could have bet him to show. And it certainly wouldn't have paid the same odds, but it, we would, it would have at least... Um, given me a little space. Let me tell you what it feels like to bet the farm in hopes of propelling your lifestyle to new heights. The minute I handed over the cash and got the ticket, my stomach started turning. It was like an eternity from the time I bought the ticket at the window and the bugle call signaled that the race was going to begin. My imagination took over when the shot started the race. Tumultuous Tornado was quick out of the gates, which basically took my endorphins to an entirely different level. I was thinking about taking the gap year after college, traveling the world, going back to Italy where I met my first love, maybe a trip to the Alps to ski. And after a few days in Amsterdam, I'd go somewhere else. Maybe I'd go to Germany. Maybe I'd go to Sweden. These are all places I wanted to go. All of these thoughts pervaded my imagination while my tornado was just racing down the stretch. At the last turn, Tornado was losing his lead while these two other horses came up on either side of him. Five to ten seconds before the finish line, I could see Tornado lose his juice, coming in third at the finish line. Those five to ten seconds churned my stomach and blood rushed out of my head. All my summer's earnings destroyed by a tornado. It took me weeks, months to get over the shock and pain and forced me to get a job on campus my senior year. Sharpening ice skates and hockey skates at this new arena at Union College. That experience generated a lot of interesting stories, some of which will never make the podcast, but it did help me generate enough income to visit my girlfriend who was back in Florence, Italy, where we first met. And I got to befriend guys on the hockey team who were always looking to party and were great bar fight guys that always had my back. So that $3,000 loss led me to another adventure in my life and taught me that there's no such thing as a sure thing. Now if I bet on sports, it's always small enough not to matter. And if I bet on myself on the golf course, well, it's still always small enough not to matter. Pulling away from I don't give a shit by a link. Coming on strong is I am out of here. And passing the pack is the fucking house. And at the wire. It's up yours. Keep the fucking house. I don't give a shit. And I am out of here. Rockstar. A great place to learn how to make the cheering squad. Win a lot of trophies. And have underage sex while intoxicated and stoned. Because we all just want to be big rock stars and live in hilltop bosses driving 15 cars. The girls come easy and the drugs come cheap. We'll all stay skinny as we just want to eat and we'll hang out in the coolest bars in the Greenville, South Carolina. A booming community with a revived downtown, a river walk, and a place to take your young girls to prepare them for cheer competition and certainly early adulthood. The owner and founder of Rockstar, Scott Foster, 
amongst accusations of inappropriate behavior with underage children, drove his car to Paris Mountain State Park and shot himself in the head. Allegations on sexual improprieties continue to grow, not only focused on Scott Foster, but on his staff across the country in all of his 15 expanded locations. Scott Foster, originally from northern Kentucky, was on the cheer squad at University of Louisville. He actually studied criminal justice in college with the hopes of joining the FBI, but I guess there weren't enough young blood there, so his pursuit became, let's become a cheer coach, because there are a lot of young girls in cheer. Foster's protege, Kenny Feely, has also been accused of sexual abuse. Could you imagine having a last name of Feely and you're accused of sexual misconduct? Well, I guess it's good his parents didn't name him Touchy, because that would have been too much foreshadowing. That would make it touchy-feely. Come on, man. You got to keep up. You just can't make this shit up, right? Foster and his wife, Kathy, started Rockstar with hopes of attracting talent that could earn scholarships and amass many trophies. They did both. They earned over 430 national titles. And along the way, Foster was suspended by the U.S. All-Star Foundation when a video emerged where he was seen drinking with underage athletes. Foster and his wife expanded to 16 gyms nationwide, most of which have changed their names to distance themselves from Foster and Rockstar. Ten of them were operated independently and just paid for the naming rights according to state and federal lawsuits. And on the subject of those lawsuits, he used his position to sexually abuse both females and male athletes. So at least he was woke. One of the law firms handling some plaintiff's cases has received over a hundred calls describing sexual abuse in multiple states. Interestingly enough, when, when at first news of Foster's death, when it was made public, there was this outpouring of grief from parents and athletes who knew him. But as the accusations of sexual abuse became public, it was like the dam just broke open. A hundred calls, multiple lawsuits claiming sexual abuse from multiple coaches throughout the organization. Okay, folks, time out. In many of these hundred accusations, it's coming out that this has been going on for decades. Now, I don't know if the FBI was brought into this years ago, like the U.S. gymnastics team, but what does this say about unchecked misbehavior of adults in charge? And also some parents that want the glory and spoils of their athletic kids' success. Again, it's bifurcated. Number one, adults in charge of young athletes coming into the prime of their sexual awareness with the leverage to throw a wrench in their future if they stop following directions or decide they want to retaliate. Number two, parents that are as motivated or more motivated than their kids for their kids to be successful and cheer. Who's protecting the interest of the kids and at what cost? If 100 phone calls claiming sexual abuse are surfacing now, it begs the question of who wasn't listening to the kids before or is the fear of retribution too threatening uh, to force the allegation? Would they have lost their position on the chair squad? I think both of these are true. Some kids probably spoke up and were shunned. Some kids were silent at a fear of losing their dreams. Parents are the guardians. When they fail to protect their kids, they fail themselves, their families, and their community. There'll always be douchebags like Larry Nasser who was accused and I believe convicted of sexual abuse for the women's gymnastics team. 
there'll always be douchebags like Scott Foster's and Kenny Neely's, if he is convicted, who all prey on the young and ambitious. I think open communication between parents and kids could thwart the bullying and aggression of predators. But it's easier said than done, particularly when there are trophies, scholarships, and big money at play. You just have to play the long game. Family first. Adderall shortage. Adderall shortage. Oh, what'd you say, man? I wasn't paying attention. Adderall shortage. Are you freaking kidding me? According to my sources, there are over 11 million adults in the United States estimated to have ADHD. Now add the number of underage sufferers and the number exceeds 25 million. That's 8% of the U.S. population. The symptoms are inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. I mean, 25 million, that's a significant part of our society that fights disorganization, lack of focus, and is forgetful. According to the Wall Street Journal, the number one pharmaceutical to help people cope with ADHD is Adderall. And the sales of Adderall have risen to 41.4 million prescriptions last year. So, like I said earlier, 25 million people uh, that have been diagnosed with ADHD, 41.4 million prescriptions. Does that say something? I mean, 60% more prescriptions than the people that are diagnosed? I think 25 million might be an underestimate. ADHD is highly heritable, yet why is it that millennial and Gen Z generations have not only popularized the drug Adderall, but have forced it into short supply? 41.5 million prescriptions suggest that more and more of us have an issue focusing and getting shit done without the assist of Adderall. The pharma company TV has clearly convinced the medical community that Adderall could make living easier for those suffering ADHD as well as everyone else around them. And for those of you that made it this far into the podcast without zoning out, I assume you weren't affected by the shortage. I'm fairly close to many Adderall users, some of those who even have prescriptions. The use of Adderall in college is off the charts. I mean, maybe it is a wonder drug to help us distracted humans stay focused, particularly the night before an exam or turn paper that we put off until time just ran out. It's hard to make a hard statement against the miracle drug when I've witnessed firsthand what it's like when someone suffering from ADHD forgets to take their daily pill or ran out of the prescription before they could lobby for the next dosage. I hesitate to imagine the effects of this Adderall shortage. Hopefully, someone you or I know and love isn't affected because if they are, we will definitely know it. is a gimme, not a gimme. 23, the gimme. Today we'll be learning about a casual but time-honored tradition employed by duffers around the world. The gimme. <laughs> In it, your golfing associates reward you for a near miss by giving you the stroke. Observe. In the rules of golf, and here we are, back to the rules of golf, you'll never see a clause for a gimme putt. However, it does come into play in recreational golf and match play. In match play, 
It's a game against you and your opponent. And since you don't have to protect the rest of the field, you can determine whether your competitor's next putt is good or not. It's usually given when their ball is either so close to the hole that it's unlikely they'll miss the next putt or when the next putt just doesn't matter because you've already won the hole. In recreational golf, gimme save time and embarrassment. I play in this senior golf league where you have to putt every shot out. That adds a lot of time to the round, particularly when you have over 100 senior guys walking off and measuring every putt, including two-foot putts. I saw a guy three-putt from two feet. The giver of gimmies has this unspoken, unwritten power that they can wield or withhold at any time to show mercy or fear into their competitors. Ooh, and look at how close it is. Why, it's as if the ball was already in the hole, eh? <laughs> I said, look how close the wee ball is. Will you be giving me my gimme or not? Now, some wily competitors will wield gimmies in the beginning of the match to instill a false sense of confidence in their competitors until the match gets tight on the back nine. Once the match gets tight, they wield those gimmies like the weight of manhole covers. In other words, sparingly. There's actually an art to being an expert gimme giver without coming off like a total asshole. When a golfer misses more than one seemingly makeable putt in a round, he or she gives her competitor more power to wield the gimme card, particularly later in the round. Will your competitor be merciful or merciless when you have the next shot to putt for a tie or for a win? If you putt everything out like my good buddy Cloudy Graves does, you never have to worry about giving the power to your competition. Another way to take the decision out of the hands of your competition is by enacting the inside the leather rule, where if the distance between your ball and the hole lies inside the length of your putter head and your grip, it's usually two feet, the next putt's good. I knew and played with this guy who hated short putts so much that he shaved the bottom of his putter grip by six inches to extend the circle of generosity by six inches. So now his gimme putts would be two and a half feet where everybody else's would be two. If I'm not playing a tournament, I like the inside the leather rule. It takes the awkwardness out of relying on your competitor to make the call on the next putt. And it certainly speeds up the game on the green. So here's the million dollar question. When somebody gives you the putt and you go ahead and putt it anyway and miss it, what's the rule? First of all, gimmies are not in the rules of golf, just like mulligans uh, and a handful of other made-up shit to move the game along for us mere mortal amateurs. Here's my take on the mock rule of the gimme. Once your opponent gives you your next putt, your score is etched in time. It cannot be erased or penciled over with a higher number. Your opponent wielded their power and gave mercy. What you choose to do after that falls into the category of courtesy, sportsmanship, and emotional intelligence, as well as time management. If you choose to go ahead and putt, despite the fact that it was given to you, it opens up an entirely different can of worms. Number one, will your opponent be offended? Number two, will you miss it, signaling your opponent to never give you another short putt again? Or number three, are you holding up play? If you have an undying urge to see if you could make the putt, you can decline the gimme. <laughs> I mean, I don't know anybody who does. Or after everybody has putted out and they're walking off the green, you could throw down a ball and putt. 
but God forbid there's a foursome behind you in the fairway waiting with their hands, one hand on one hip and the other hand on their club, signaling their impatience with your group slow play. When that happens more than once, you can be assured that there's going to be some conflict between you and the people behind you. My advice, when an opponent gives you a putt, bend down and pick up your ball and move out of the way. Or if you're the last person to putt, move off the green. It creates less angst, signals to your opponent that their decision to speed up play was adhered to and sets up less drama at the end of the match. Again, like everything in golf, it comes down to one thing. Just don't be a douche. Will you be giving me my gummy or not? Ooh! By the beard of St. Andrew! Never before in my life have I been slapped in the face by such cold-hearted indifference to the fine and bonny traditions of the sacred game of golf. Now will you be giving it to me or not, you pompous baboon? No. So if you stayed for the whole episode, I've ranted about the tales of Alex Jones. May he stand in a soup line for his remaining years. Begging bachelorettes, why do they keep doing it? You are hiring ex-cons to sell weed. Good luck. Minions, minions everywhere. Gentlemen smugglers. People that are jack-in-the-box. Man, don't be jack-in-the-box tumultuous tornado in the eighth race and learning how not to gamble rockstar cheer where everybody seems to be getting fingered the adderall shortage now i'm not sure the effects of the adderall shortage but it's not going to be good and when is a gimme not a gimme a gimme is always a gimme just be smart and take it and with that i'm your host rich easton Telling tales from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.